Good morning. It's really great to be uh, sharing with you this morning and continuing the journey through the book of Ephesians. And I have the privilege of sharing Ephesians 3 verses 14 to 21. And you would have already heard the scripture shared with you. So I'm just going to dive right in. Um, I love and collect old prayer books. And as one of the things I do as a part of one, of one of my spiritual practices is I will often read and pray into some of these old prayer books and old prayers, um, asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate afresh, um, both give me insight to where the author originally was, what it, where is God in it, and, and, and provide some illumination and some fresh way forward through them. And so today to start sharing, I would love to share an old prayer with you. And so if you just want to bow your heads wherever you're at home, and let's just pray together. Eternal God, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, unite us as we worship here with all who in far off places are lifting up their hands and hearts to thee, that thy church throughout the world with the church in heaven may offer up one sacrifice of thanksgiving to the praise and honor of thy name. Amen. When you read Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 21, you can feel the passion of Paul as he's writing to the church in Ephesus, um, and, and as we'll see in a moment, not just them, to us as well. He is praying, interceding, and crying out for the believers. If you want to get a picture, I'm a visual person, so I like to create pictures in my mind of what is it Paul was doing when he was doing this. And I see Paul actually bent over, literally on his knees. So when he writes on my knees, he's not using figurative speech. He's actually on his knees, wrestling for the church, wrestling for the church that he was try wanting to encourage, wrestling for the churches that would receive his letter, wrestling even for you and for me today. When you look at Paul's letter and you look at the book of Ephesians, it's what's referred to as a circular letter. I think Joshua in one of the previous messages actually touched on this concept of a circular letter. And what makes a circular letter so powerful is, not, is, is that it was not written to a specific group at a specific time for a specific purpose. These letters actually traveled with people from church to church where it was read aloud for the church to engage in. So to me, I am really comfortable when I look at the book of Ephesians to say, yes, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, but to the church in Rome and to the church in Colossae, every church where this letter was read, even as we as a church today continue the reading of the book of Ephesians, it's written to you, it's written to me, it's written for us as a community of believers in this time. We might find ourselves in a strange time. We might find ourselves somewhere between normal, COVID normal and whatever a new normal could look like. Paul is writing to us. You might be a new church, a new convert. We might have been an established church and, 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 and have been saved for, for, for maybe generations in our families. Paul is writing to your heart and to mine. When you look at these, this, when you look at the book of Ephesians, there's six chapters. 
and every chapter was broken up into different parts and every part um, in, in, in the chapters has a subchapter and the subchapter has a heading. And quite often I think these headings or these subchapters get in the way of what God is trying to do, what His Spirit is trying to do, what the writer's original intention was. And so when I look at the book of Ephesians, I, I reflect on a, a scholar by the name of N.T. Wright, Tom Wright. He writes and he says, most circular letters, the first half of the book of the circular letter is all about doctrine. It's about what we believe, what we should believe. And the second half is all about ethics. It's the way we behave because of what we believe. And he says the book of Ephesians is no different. Chapters 1 through 3 is all about doctrine. It's about what we believe. And as we've heard the different speakers share, um, as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, we see what it is we're meant to believe our doctrine, and as we're about to discover from next week, we will actually see that there's a gear change, there's a shift as chapters 4 through 6 start to talk about how we ought behave, how we ought live now that we, now that we know. When you look at the book of Ephesians, it's quite, it's quite obvious. Chapter 1 is, hey, you need to know these things. Chapter 2 is all about uh, this idea of you once were, now you are. And chapter 3 then says, now don't lose heart. And chapters 4 through 6 then talk about, so how ought we now live as we come to terms with this? So N.T. Wright says, hey, you know what? Ephesians is no different to the other circular letters. The first three chapters are all about belief and the second three all about lifestyle. But what he does ask is that he says, maybe, just maybe Paul had started praying already. That chapters 1 to 3 is all one continuous prayer where Paul is on his knees already or already pacing. You know, for, for me as a Pentecostal, I pray best when I pace and I preach best when I, when, 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 when I pace. And so you can imagine Paul pacing as he's, as he's dictating the letter. Or, and, 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 but it's actually a prayer that he's sharing. And he gets to chapter 3, verses 14, and he literally goes down on his knees. And he starts this final piece of the prayer in intercession. And he says, hey, this is what I want. When you look at chapter 1, just to jump back for a second, just to support what N.T. Wright is saying and to see what God is doing and to see what Paul is actually doing. Verse 3, it says, blessed be God. Blessed be the God. Blessed. This blessed is actually um, the word Baruch. Baruch, Barak, whichever way that you want to pronounce it. It's a, it's a Hebrew word that's, that, that is actually says blessed. Now, one of the things I love to do is when I look at Hebrew is to get into the ancient Hebrew uh, writing when, when they actually used pictures to explain what was happening. And when you break down the word uh, Baruch, it actually is the letter B, the letter R, and the letter K. B is bet. The picture is a tent, and it speaks about family. R is, is resh, and resh is the head of a man, and it talks about the head, he who is first or the top of something. And the K is cuff. It's an open palm. It talks about being open or about bending forward. And so when I look at this word, as Paul starts then this prayer in, in chapter 1, verse 3, and he says, blessed. 
He's actually saying that the family of God bends and opens themselves to the head, to he who is first, to he who is the top. And I love that because that actually paints the picture, the disposition, the attitude, the posture of Paul. Because what Paul is saying is, hey, what we're doing as the family of God is opening ourselves up to praise Him who is God. And, and this theme then runs through all the way through and culminates right here, this posture. My prayer is that we as a community of believers, that we as a church can adopt the same posture when we praise God, when we bless His name, that we're able to say we the family open ourselves up and bend ourselves before He who is God, He who is first, He who is the top. So as you read, and, and you, you, you read in that passage, it says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I just want to stop for a second and just pause. If we understand chapters 1 to 3 as doctrine, belief, what I believe, if we understand it as a prayer that is continuing and about to culminate in what we call a doxology, if, if this is what's really happening here now, we understand this posture and God talks, Paul talks about God the Father and he starts to talk about it, what, and, and this family, what is Paul actually saying? What is it that we belong to? As Joshua spoke about uh, this inclusivity of what, what happens when we are in Christ. In my research and in, in my preparation, I came across a message that actually is from October 1873. So that would be what's that? 20, 1873, that would be 27. So that would be 147 years ago. They were wrestling with the same thought out of the same text that the guy who wrote in 1873 said, when we think of this concept of what God, what Paul is saying here and God being the head and this, this family, he said, look, the church, this is the family we're a part of. This is the community that you and I are a part of here at Cornerstone. We're not a building. He said, while a building is compact and there is symmetry, the building has no life. He says, the church, us, us are here at Cornerstone. We're not a vine or a tree because while a vine or a tree carries life, shows growth and goes through seasons, it has no intelligence. It's automated. And he says, well, while we can be kings, the church can be like a king or like a priest in a community and be filled with position and dignity or purity and be consecrated, set apart. It lacks affection and it lacks social interaction. And he says, 1873, reflecting on what Paul wrote 2000 years ago, what's valid for you and me today the church, us, the community of believers are so much more than a building, a vine, a tree, being kings or being priests. 
because within us we're family and he says when Paul's writing over here he's saying hey we belong to God's family we're part of something that is significant hence the prayer I started with in the beginning we no matter where we are across the face of the earth we belong to one family this thought that says I'm family means yes there is compactness yes there is symmetry and yes there's life yes there's life there's growth there's seasons but there's also intelligence in the church yes there's position and dignity but there's also affection yes there's purity and consecration but yes we also socially interact with each other one another and the communities in which we find ourselves this Greek concept of father carries the notion not of a God that's out there and untouchable, but a God that is very real and very present. It talks about kingship. It talks about the father's house. It talks about the father's family, both the whole family, but also a wholesome family. So when Paul is writing this and he says, I'm on my knee before God, he's saying, I'm actually praying on behalf of the family to the guy who is the head of the family and saying, this God is what we need. This daddy is what we need. And he's just done chapter one, chapter two, and explained what it is we believe, the position we have, what we know, who we were and who we are now. And he's saying, now, here comes the climax one of the scholars actually says that at this point, somewhere around about verses 14 through to verses 18, Paul is on fire. Paul is one, what you would call an absolute Pentecostal preacher. Literally, you can just imagine if you were there, there would be sputum flying across the room. He'd be, he'd be on his knees, but he would be left and right. Paul's on fire. Paul is impassioned. Because it is in this moment that he's saying to you and he's saying to me, do you know that I'm praying that you would be enabled by the Holy Spirit, that you would be filled, that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. But guess what? Literally, you're on fire. The Holy Spirit enables us. Uh, one of the other writers writes, with the potent help of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul's praying here right at the end of chapter 3. For the church in Ephesus. For you. For me. He's saying, hey, I pray that you would be filled with power to live. It's this almost this pivotal point, this shift from chapters 1 through to 3 being all about belief to chapters 4 to 6 about how you're going to live. He says, look, I know what you believe. I've just told you that. Now I'm going to tell you how to live, but you can't do it alone. I can't do it alone. You're going to need the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, hey, will you let the Holy Spirit take your impotence and allow the Spirit of God in you to transform it into a supernatural energy. And that's my challenge for you and for me today. Will we receive this prayer of Paul for us? I know the, the pastors and the leaders of our church pray for us all the time. The elders pray for us all the time. We pray for each other all the time. 
that we would all be strengthened on the inner man, filled with the Spirit of God that in our weakness, He may be glorified, both in us and in our communities. When we think about just breaking that prayer down to the you may be strengthened in the inner man by the Holy Spirit, it literally is an, a, a supplication, a prayer, a declaration even for enablement for you and for me. It's about the strength to overcome, overcome the things that Joshua and that some of the other speakers have shared with us, to overcome those things that could entrap us, that could ensnare us, that could slow us down, that could hold us back. It's being strengthened in the inner man, the spiritual man, as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. It's important to note here, though, that Paul's not saying, hey, just because you're going to be strengthened in the inner man, filled with the Spirit of God, that now you're not going to have any trials, no tribulations. Your life is going to actually be one big honeymoon. Far from it. He's actually saying you will have the strength to overcome whatever situation you find yourself in. Whatever situation we find ourselves in as the church, as the community of believers that we are here at Cornerstone, here in Brisbane, here in Southeast Queensland, here in Queensland, Australia, the world. The next part he actually that I want to touch on is that he says, so that Christ would dwell in your heart. And when you look at the Greek there, it's actually referring to a continuous moment by moment. So when Paul says that, that, so that Christ will dwell in your heart, it's not like a once-off event where we say, Hey, Jesus, I want you to come and live inside me. And now that, I go, now, now that you are, I don't have to worry about you. It's, it's, it's not like this. It's like you know, in a garden, we've just bought a, a unit a couple of months ago, and we're putting a garden in, and we're going to plant a tree. And once I've planted the tree, it's planted. And now it'll just take care of itself and it'll grow. And occasionally I'll give it a bit of nurture and a bit of food and a bit of water. But I'll just make sure it has what it needs and it will take care of itself. This is not the same, the same thought that Paul's writing. So, so that Christ would dwell in your heart. It's continuous. It's moment by moment. He is always dwelling in my heart. It is ongoing and it is a maintained experienced. N.T. Wright does caution, and, and, and I want to share his caution. I think it's really important, specifically when you look at the book of Ephesians. A, a book of Ephesians talks about the concept of, or the thought of, we are, that, that we are in Christ. And N.T. Wright sometimes talks about that when we get this wrong and we say, I've got to get him in me, then it's almost like it's a lone, it's an alone journey. It almost isolates me. It, me, it puts me on the outside. And, and that's not what Jesus intended. It's not what God intended. It's not what Paul's writing about. He says, hey, you need to realize you're in Christ. So we are in Christ first. And when we are in Christ, we have all the access to these blessings. We have this, this prayer for strength on the inner man, the enablement that allows us to have Christ in us and then Christ in us change us and Christ in us through us make a difference in our communities. The dimensions of love. When you read, he talks about the width, that we would know the width, the length, the depth and the height. And there's a lot of people that have written around what this could mean. 
But when you look back into the book of Ephesians, Paul's actually outlays this for us already. When it says the understanding the width of the love of God, uh, chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, it's about embracing all men. And, and I think Josh touched on this in one of his, his messages as well. It embraces all men. It, it, the, the love of God is not reserved for a people group, for a race, for a gender, for an age or a generation. His, his love embraces all of humanity for all times. And you and I find ourselves as a part of that. And the community we find ourselves in is a part of that. And the community we're meant to reflect the love of Christ to are a part of that too. The length, chapters 1, 4 to 6, chapter 3, verses 9, this refers to from eternity to eternity. Uh, we, we read in the New Testament that we were saved before the foundation of the earth. And you can mess with your head because Jesus only came at a certain point in time. But it just shows me that God had me in His mind. He had us in His mind. He had rela perfect relationship between us and Him in His mind way back then. And, and it'll never leave His mind till ever, eternity to eternity. So you want to know how long God loves you? Sometimes kids will love you as long as they get their way. Or ice cream or this or that. Sometimes an employee will love you as long as they get their way. But God loves us from way back then. And we can't even measure that to way back there, to, to way there. And we can't measure that. That is the length of his love. The depth of his love, we read in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, he rescues us from sin. From the depths of Hades, from hell, he lifts us up and rescues us. I just love that thought. And the height? Well, we've already heard about this in one of the previous messages. He raises us up in heavenly places. So God's love for me embraces all of humanity, is from everlasting to everlasting, rescued me from my sin and positions me, seats me in heavenly places. And the final thought is this concept that he says, and that you would be filled, that we would be filled with the fullness of God, that we would know the fullness of God. And try and get your head around filled and fullness and God in the same sentence. You see, I am a finite being. You are a finite being. He is an infinite God. He is creator. And so how, do, how does all of me be filled with all of him? Well, it's just not going to happen, is it? If I want to measure the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, I can actually go using modern technology, plumb the depths, measure the circumference, and using mathematics, I can come up with the volume of water in the Atlantic Ocean. But how do you measure a shoreless ocean? That is God. That is God's blessing for us. That is God's love for us. It's infinite. And the picture I have is that this, this big barrel is filled, but the, I cannot see the bottom of the barrel. It's just super abundance. And out of that, I am being filled. And I am being filled to the fullness of me that I would overflow. But I cannot, as the smaller vessel, contain everything from the bigger vessel. But when it talks about the fullness... For example, if I put water in this big vessel and I threw dye, red dye in it, 
the water and the dye would mix and it would be a certain color. That then poured out into me. I would have the same color water in me as, in, as, as what's in the bigger vessel, but I will never contain all that is in the bigger vessel. That's what Paul is using here as an image. That when he says, and, and, and we'll, we'll read it here, when he says that we may understand and know be filled with the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, he's saying that we would be filled with the full essence of, filled with the full essence of who God is. I don't know about you, but I'm going, bring it on. Fill me with the fullness of who you are, God. That me being in Christ and having Christ in me, understanding what I know about what I believe, understanding what I was and who I am now, to not lose heart so that I can live a certain way. Spurgeon says, We come in quest of replenishment at the wellspring of all sufficiency, which pours forth its undiminished superabundance from the throne of God, and the Lamb. Spurgeon, Paul says, hey, I'm praying for you for this. And Spurgeon says, hey God, this is my need. And it's like the two, the two people meet in this moment in your and my head, in your and my heart, in your and my love, where we join with Spurgeon saying, I'm, I'm looking, I come in this quest of being filled from the wellspring of all sufficiency. And Paul says, guess what? I've been praying that for you for ages. God says that's always been my intent for you for ages. Gordon Fee says, I want to encourage you with what's happening here in the book of Ephesians. He says this is what Paul's doing. He says Paul now prays that they, the church in Ephesus, and us, the church here in Cornerstone, that we might experience what he has just related. Now, in terms of knowing the unknowable love of Christ, and so be filled through the power of the Holy Spirit with all the fullness of God himself. Such a prayer and its potential realization through the Spirit calls us once more to praise God. And as we started, chapter 1, verse 3, Baruch, blessed, your family, God, bow themselves, open themselves, and praise your name. So we, tonight, today, praise your name. I just want to finish in just reading, this is a prayer for us. So for this reason, I bow my knees with you before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of God's glory, God may grant us to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner beings, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to Him, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, 
to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless.